Hi there, welcome to Semester 6, Episode 4 of the Ivy Wise Just Admit It podcast, where former deans and directors of admissions give expert insight into the complex college admissions landscape. On this season of Just Admit It, we're breaking down the college admissions rubric and highlighting a few top colleges. I'm Tasha, your host for this season. I'm an admissions counselor at IvyWise and a former international admissions officer at USC and former assistant director of international admissions at Boston University. My guest today is Carl, an IvyWise master tutor who specializes in preparing students for the SAT and ACT. He also works with students to tutor academic English, writing and essay skills, U.S. history, social studies, and elementary and middle school math. So today, we'll be getting into one of the most controversial factors in the college admissions process, standardized testing. All right, Carl, um, so I know I just introduced you, but could you please go ahead and say hello and add anything that I might have missed? Hi, uh, thank you for having me, Tasha. Um, you you said a lot. I forgot I did some of those things. Um, <laughs> just, uh, just kidding. But yeah, I've been, I've been doing test prep for a very long time. Now I'm, I'm working with students who I'm like, I actually think I've been doing this your whole life. You know, so uh, I've seen a lot of, I've been around the block, so to speak, with the, the test prep. Awesome. Well, it sounds like we have a really seasoned and um, expert master tutor here with us. So I'm very excited to really dig in. Uh, So before I really start to ask you any questions, Carl, I just kind of want to make sure that our listeners um, have the same kind of historical context. And I actually learned quite a bit when researching for this episode, just wanting to give kind of a brief history of standardized testing in the U.S. um, and kind of how it's evolved to what it is today. So what we think of generally when we're talking about standardized testing, at least in the undergraduate uh, context, are the SAT and the ACT right, which are for college entrance. Um, But then also there are other kinds of standardized testing that you might think about, like statewide testing programs. For example, there's the Regents exams in New York State. Uh, But for the purpose of this conversation, we will be really sticking to SAT and ACT. So SAT is run by the College Board. That's the same company that runs AP classes um, and the AP program, Advanced Placement, which you might be participating in or familiar with. Uh, The the test was founded in 1926, and it was uh, the Student Aptitude Test, uh, but now actually it stands for the Student Assessment Test. And the ACT was founded in 1959 as kind of a competitor for the SAT and offering up a different kind of test for maybe different kinds of testers. Uh, But more recently, a lot has changed and been reconsidered regarding these tests and whether they need to be or should be part of the college admissions process. This is largely due to, you know, lots of research that's come out in the last few decades, but especially in the last few years with the COVID-19 pandemic and loss of access to the test itself for a moment. So, of course, we'll be digging into that. Uh, But first, let's just start with some kind of a really simple uh, bird's eye question for Carl. Carl, what's going on with standardized tests right now? Um, There have been a lot of changes. Can you kind of give us the nuts and bolts through the last couple of years? Yeah, sure. It's been a a, a wild west kind of time for standardized testing. Um, And, you know, I would say very tense and maybe confusing and nerve wracking for a lot of the students who have had to take them in the last few years. And um, like many things, it kind of starts with the pandemic of, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and the shutdown that made it so that people couldn't be in person in a lot of places. 
And I think that has led to the wave of making, you know, more schools go test optional, make, uh, and the recent announcement, I think is a major driving force behind the recent announcement of the SAT to um, say that they will be digital going forward starting in 2024. Um, and it, it, it's a major change to that test that we haven't seen that probably the biggest change of the test that, that it's ever been and, and i've seen the test change over the years from my time as a student um to it it went to a three-section test for for 10 years or 05 to 2015 um but was had a lot of the same characteristics of the old uh 1600 version and then it went back to 1600 in 2016 um at taking that third section which was writing and language and and folding it into the reading comprehension section and that version of it you know i thought was a pretty good version of the test that that we've been working with since 2016 um and then this announcement kind of changes a lot in terms of that test in particular um but uh you know, you mentioned the ACT. The ACT is, if the SAT is, you know, your latest iPhone uh, that, that changes every update, you know, and, and oh, now we have a front-facing camera. And the, the ACT is like, I am a desktop computer. I am reliable. I will not, I will be the same as you were, as you remember me from before, right? So, um we could talk about the differences between those tests as well, but um, there's a lot going on. I, I would say just in general, there's no need to panic. We can always make the best decisions for ourselves. Great. And then getting a little bit more specific to some of the changes that have gone on most recently, kind of since most universities have gone test optional, um, what changes have you seen with some kind of maybe high profile universities making changes to their policies more recently? Yeah, um, well, you know, so the pandemic made it so that it was a lot harder for a lot of students to take standardized tests. And then that made standardized testing as a metric for admissions evaluation more difficult, especially in 2020, 2021. Um, and a lot of schools went test optional. And what we saw as a direct result from a lot of, especially of the more competitive schools, was that admissions rates started to go way down. You started seeing kind of startlingly low um, admissions rates. And that was due to likely, and this is this is some of this is speculation, but it's been said also that a lot of students who would typically self-select out of the application pool due to where where their score was, were saying, you know what, I'm going to give it a try anyway, right? So that was making it so that more applications were coming in. And so it's not that the, the schools are necessarily harder to get into, but that the pool expanded in such a way that they were having to turn away more students. Now, different schools have reacted differently. Um, MIT has reinstated that they will definitely require some standardized tests, the SAT or the ACT. Columbia has said that it will permanently go test optional, for example, right? You can see why a school like MIT would need to have a testing requirement. It's very math and science oriented. You can't, if, if you can't do 
extremely well on the SAT or ACT math, then MIT is not the school for you. And it just, it's just not that school for you, right? So they're going to get a lot of applications and a lot of applicants, and they need another barrier to admission. It, it sounds bad to say, but it, it the standardized tests are not just assessments to see, oh, how am I doing versus my peers, but it's a way for schools to weed out a certain applicant that does not fit their admissions profile, right? Um, that it may be an indicator that it wouldn't be a good fit at the school. Now, Columbia is leaning in the other direction to say, and a lot of other schools are doing this as well, they say, well, we're just going to put more emphasis on the other parts of your application. You know, I, I always tell students, um, yes, it's good. It's great to do well on, on this test, but it's never going to make up for a bad GPA, right? So things like GPA uh, and your essays and other parts of your application that factored in to whatever percentage that they did will just become more important in those schools that are test optional where students are not submitting scores. If you're not submitting a score, right, then we're, we're, we're going to see what's your school profile, what's, what kind of classes have you taken, uh, how well are you doing in those classes. The best indicator of the next four years of academics is the previous four years of academics, for example. Um, and uh, so, and and to say, if if it is test optional, right, but they they accept the test. So some there are some schools that won't even accept your standardized test scores, right? And those are fewer than the the test optional schools. The test optional schools, I would say, you you know, I may be jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, taking the test, the the decision of whether or not should I take a standardized test, um, well, you can take it right? You don't necessarily have to submit it to that school. So if you take it and you do well, and you're in the upper 50%, upper 25%, if you look in there, you know, the, the, all these schools that uh, release their middle, you know, 50% of, uh, of what the admitted students get on these tests, right? If you're scoring competitively relative to that, then by all means, submit that score. If you're not scoring competitive relative to that, so if you're on the lower end or below that middle 50%, then I probably would, if I were advising a student, I would probably advise that student to not submit that score. Thanks, Carl, for, for getting to that really important question. And I think you just started to answer it, but I want to make sure that uh, that listeners really dig into that. So how does a student decide whether or not to even try taking these tests, or should every student try to take one of these tests in their college admissions process? You know, I would say first, as uh, as a tutor of the SAT and ACT, I would just by my own advice, never say every, uh, you know, it's a, but because every student, that's a, that's a well, probably too blanket of a statement, you know, you, you still have your students going to school for art and, and other things that, that aren't necessarily testing conducive, right? Like if I score 1600, but I can't paint, I'm probably not going to get into Parsons, right? But, um, uh, but I would say, you know, not each test is not equally suitable for every student. I, plenty of students will do much better on the ACT or 
or much better on the SAT, depending on their skill set, the way that they process information, et cetera, right? So um, I would say the first thing to do is to decide if you are going to take a test that you take a diagnostic of each. Ivy Wise offers kind of a, a, a truncated diagnostic of, of both tests uh, and will assess based on how you did which test is right for you, right? Um, generally, the ACT is more suited to students, I think, that do really well in at math, but necessar aren't necessarily um, the best in uh, reading comprehension and or students for whom complicated wording in questions is a barrier, right? So ACT math goes to a more complicated place than SAT math does, but SAT math can be more difficult because the questions are asked in a more obtuse way, in a way that it's a lot of word problems and, and you have to kind of decipher what's being asked as, as a way that they use to mask that the actual math you're doing isn't that advanced, right? Um, so some students are great at just kind of translating and seeing the forest through the trees and they go, oh, you're asking me this, I'll just do this. And the SAT is better for them, right? Or students who are maybe better at um, reading and not as strong in, say, you know, have no idea what to do with the law of cosines, right? Then the ACT is probably not a great test for you. Um, but I will say that with a lot of the changes to the SAT, if those spook you, again, the ACT is right there. They are equally valid tests in terms of admissions and, and how they are considered by admissions officers and colleges. Um, so whichever test ends up being a better one for you, go with that, play to your strengths, right? It's your future, not anyone else's. Um, and so that that's kind of how to decide whether, you know, between the two, uh, I would try both just to see, you know, in, in a setting that is not uh, too high pressure, like you don't have to submit your diagnostic source to anyone, right? So just find it out for yourself. Um, and if, if you're going to go, well, test optional, or, or if you're going to say, well, I'm not going to submit scores anyway, because I know I'm not a great test taker, that's perfectly valid. Right, there are plenty of schools that, that are test optional. Um, again, if you, if you don't think that you're gonna end up in the higher end of a, a school's range, then just do yourself a favor and, and focus on the other parts of the application, I would say. That's awesome, thank you. And, and that really goes into my next question that um, I'm kind of improvising a bit, but you've, you've kind of alluded to it a few times now is this idea that, uh, you know, universities received way more applications and in, in the first few cycles since they became test optional. And then, of course, that made their admission rates go down. But that doesn't mean that they weren't still receiving quite a few tests from for many applicants, right? And so I'm curious, and I think a lot of a lot of students will come with to me with the question of am I at a disadvantage if I don't submit a test? So, you know, understanding that universities are test optional, but feeling like those universities probably have some kind of 
preference uh, to still receive tests. But that being said, as you've mentioned several times, you know, it really depends on the profile and kind of what that school's range for the test might be. So kind of all of that said, the question is, how do you advise a student on whether or not they should submit their tests? Just really black and white. Yeah. So black and white, I would say. So let's say let's take a school like um, let's say Columbia, for example. You know, let's just Google this and get it right. So, OK, according to, to my Google search, reading and writing somewhere between 720 and 770, math 750 to 800. So we're looking at 1470 to 1570, which is like, you know, almost topping out at the top. Right. So if you are scoring a 1300 on your SAT and like 1300 is the best you could do, you shouldn't submit a score to Columbia because Columbia will look at that and say, that's well below our range. If it's a 1400, maybe still, I'm not sure, you know, um, because it's below the the middle 50% for their SAT score. Um, Now, there are other ways, if you want to go test optional, there are other ways to show that you are academically qualified. Other, you know, you, of course, they're your grades, number one, the classes you've taken. If you have taken AP classes and you've taken AP tests and done well on AP tests, right, I would argue that a five on an English Lit AP exam is worth more than a 750 reading and writing score because that's, you know, you're already bordering on college level work at that point, right? Um and you can show that, and, and it's a much more comprehensive test. It's a test that is that that is a little more holistic and, and involves you know long form response as well. So um, that's just one example, right? So I would say always give yourself the best opportunity, right? Um, also know that a school like Columbia, MIT, once we get to, into that range. If they really wanted to, they could just always get like all the perfect score kits if they really, really wanted to. There, there's, there's a glut of, of high, high scores up there. So find other ways to distinguish yourself. Be it, if, you know, if you're a great writer and you can have a great personal statement, that's awesome, right? If you're, you're, your supplements are, are really strong. But none of those things by themselves are going to get you into the school. Even a... a a perfect SAT score by itself won't get you into the school, right? If you have a great perfect SAT score and you can't write a decent personal statement, you're probably not going to get into a school that that's that competitive in the first place. So I guess just compare your best score to the range of the school that is that that you're applying to, and if if it's not up to par with that, I think the general consensus is don't submit that score or go go test optional. Great. Thank you so much. That was a really great breakdown. And I think that example is really helpful to help us kind of really visualize, put some numbers onto it and and kind of go through a theoretical decision-making process around that. Of course, you know, the students who take like Coursera classes and other kind of classes to show that maybe they're, you know, they're into doing doing things at the college level right that can that can help to 
just get, you know give a, a, a school a better picture of what you're capable of. Sure. So, Carl, we've really, I think, gone through a lot of uh, of what we wanted to discuss. I really appreciate it. Uh, but I think I'd love to kind of pick your brain a little bit further, just knowing, as you said, how long you've been doing this, uh, is, is a little bit about what kind of general advice or general test prep you recommend for students. Um, I know that that's probably going to vary quite a bit. Can you tell us maybe what you'd recommend for a certain kind of student versus another kind of student? Or is every recommendation that you give totally individual? I would say not entirely individual, but probably. So I would say that it all starts with a diagnostic. If you're going to take a a standardized test, just take a diagnostic, see where your starting point is, right? It's hard for me to give advice to any student if I don't know their profile or if I don't know um, what their strengths and weaknesses are ahead of time, you know, what what they like and don't like in terms of scholastic activity. So often with my own students, I try to have a conversation with them first about what their interests are, what their sticking points might be. Um, so to that extent, every recommendation is individual, but I would say once you take a diagnostic, that illuminates a lot in terms of um, what which test might be a better fit, um, SAT versus ACT. Um, and then I would say, you know, think, things that can always help every student if they're going to take either of these tests, it, um, you know, read. It's a very, uh, read, read, not like, you know, BuzzFeed quizzes necessarily, but maybe an article, a news article, like, you know, Washington Post level, New York Times level, Atlantic level, writing, Wall Street Journal, writing, any kind of critical writing, uh, something that that will uh, engage your critical thinking skills. Um novels of a certain level you know high school level novels not just for the sake of of passing a test but actually absorbing the info i would say um you know brush up on algebra basics it's very it's not it's not like flashy or fun but algebra and geometry basics go a long way on both tests and they often are things that especially if let's say i'm preparing in my junior year and I'm in pre-calc or I'm in trigonometry, I haven't thought about y equals mx plus b in a while, right? And I haven't thought about exponent rules maybe in, in a little while. And so my math performance may be lower than my capability to, simply because I'm rusty and I just need to brush up a little bit. And then there's online resources for everything at this point. You know, Khan Academy has great resources for the SAT. Um, there are no shortages of YouTube explanations of actual tests that have been administered for ACT and SAT. Um, take a look, see what other people do who perform really well. You know, um, those are those are just kind of like little things one can do to help oneself. But um, there is no substitute for just practice practice and guidance, right? So what I I offer, I offer the guidance, I expect you to do the practice. And what would you say to a family or to a student who's considering uh, test prep services like IBYs? 
I would say that working with Carl Foreman is a great idea. No, but I, I would also say uh, a family, I, you know, Abby Wise does a great job of taking care of students and making everyone feel special and individual. Abby Wise provides a lot of counseling uh, through the admissions process. I think that's the main, the main part of, of the, the service. Um, and then tutoring it is usually an extension of that. To, to help one achieve the admissions goals. Um, establishing a, a, a good open and, and communicative relationship with your counselor obviously is the first step. And then finding a great fit with a tutor. You know, if you can work with a tutor and maybe it's not a great fit at first, you can always, you can always do a demo session and, and, and test it out to see if it might work. And then if, you know, if you start to work with a tutor and it's not working out for whatever reason, there may be another tutor that's better for you. And there was no shortage of tutors. You know, I'm, I'm just on the tutoring side. Um, and I will say that every tutor here is an expert in their field, um, that they don't even consider hiring you unless you have an extensive level of uh, experience. And I remember when I was even interviewing, I was like, oh, yeah, I've been doing this a long time. They're like, yeah, yeah, that's why we called you in. So, um, uh, I would say you're in good hands. That's that's definitely uh, a great way of putting it. And I would agree from the counseling side. Um, so just closing up here, we got a question uh, over our email uh, last week um, regarding our MIT episode, episode three. So I'm going to go ahead and read the question. So what do you recommend for this year's sophomore class since the SAT will be moving from paper to digital halfway through their testing cycle? Should students who begin testing in the fall try to complete their testing before March 2024 so they're solely testing with the paper version? Or should students hold off and start their testing in March 2024 if they prefer the digital version? I've heard from some professionals that it is best to avoid the first two test dates of the digital test in case there are any glitches. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say um, it depends on how much prep one will have done before that point in time and how comfortable that student is with the paper version. So let's say you start now. Let's say you start right now and you're preparing for the, the SAT and um, you know, it's the spring and you uh, prepare all summer and you take uh, you take the August test and then maybe you can fit in the October or November test and or the December test. Like if you can complete a whole testing cycle before um, the digital test comes out and the paper test speaks to you, then stick with the paper test. If you're not going to start your test prep journey until the fall or, or late fall, right? Um, maybe see if the digital test would be better. I would say try it out. Try out the what's the any type of diagnostic uh, practice that is available to you in the digital version. Um, if you prefer it, um, I would say also just you know, I don't know about avoiding the first two tests with any glitches. I, I think that it, in terms of glitches, those things would be accounted for. Uh, you know, if there's a glitch question, that would probably be weeded out. Um, and if, if you're that concerned about all the changes, then maybe just take the ACT. 
right? It's just, it's a similar level test you can use. Yeah, that's great advice. There's still another option, but, um, you know, students can give both versions of the test to try and kind of see how they feel. Um, Carl, thank you so much. Is there anything that I haven't asked you specifically that you think uh, folks should really know or be aware of just as we continue to wade through this standardized test evolutionary journey? Um, you know, I think you asked me a, a, a lot of great questions. Um, I would say just uh, keep perspective in mind. And this whole thing is very nerve wracking and it feels like the most important thing you'll ever do with some of these tests and it's like you know what in five years you may not remember your score you just get it you just will have graduated from a place and will be on your way to a new journey and um you know there's there's always options right it's it there there are there are lots of great options and um let's just don't let it like consume your life it it's okay life goes on. <laughs> Absolutely. Great, great words to live by. All right, Carl, uh, thank you so much again for coming on to episode four of Just Admit It. This just about wraps up this episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Tasha. And um, uh, good luck to all my students out there. That just about wraps up this episode of Just Admit It, as we discussed what's going on with standardized testing. In our next episode, we'll be answering the question, how important are transcripts and course rigor? So if you have any questions about transcripts and rigor, please email us at podcast at ivywise.com. That last question you heard on this podcast came through our inbox. We really do love getting listener questions, so send them in. And please don't forget to catch up on all of our previous episodes and previous semesters and check out the IvyWise knowledge base for more college prep resources like our blog. You can also follow us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram for more college admissions tips. You can find us at follow IvyWise. From IvyWise, I'm Tasha, and this has been Just Admit It. Thanks for listening.